All right, why don't you open up your Bibles to uh, the book of Titus chapter 3. Uh, we're in part six of this series through the letter of Titus, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young uh, church planter, pastor, bishop on the island of Crete in the midpoint in the, uh, the, the first century. Um, uh, we have talked about how this letter really is all about um, having our uh, behavior match our beliefs, our uh, sound doctrine and our sound living matching up. Uh, that's the way it's supposed to work, that our, our uh, sound living is supposed to be matched by uh, sound uh, doctrine. And so what Titus is all about is this, guys. Titus is all about making God's invisible kingdom visible by how we live. Like that's what it's about because there is a watching world that is looking on and we need to be living our lives, our behavior, like we need to be living our lives in such a way that people look at us and they see something that is different. Maybe they can't put a label on it. They don't know what it is, but they should see a difference in us. And so remember, Titus is a letter. And so that's why early on the first week of the series, I ask you to Take some time and read it through from start to finish three different times in three different translations. It would take you about uh, 20 minutes to do all of that because it's a short letter. I did that because I didn't want you to miss the flow of Paul's argument, his teaching, his communication to Titus. Like in chapter 1, Paul gives Titus directions about sound doctrine and sound living. Uh, within the context of the local church, especially in regards to its leadership. And then in chapter 2, he does the same, but then he kind of focuses more his attention on believers as they interact with each other, especially within the context of the Christian home. And then in chapter 3, where we'll look today, uh, Paul turns his attention to how to make once again, the invisible kingdom of Christ visible in how we relate to the world. And so in uh, typical kind of Pauline fashion, uh, he uh, begins with some Christian duties and then he anchors those duties in Christian doctrine. And so verse 1, it says, Remind them. Who's the them? It's these Cretan believers who in the context of this verse... Uh, these are Cretan believers whose government was, was notoriously corrupt and whose citizens were known for periodic insurrections. And so he's saying, hey, remind these, you know, them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, guys, honestly, I could camp out right there for the rest of my time for the next 40 minutes, 45 minutes, I could just talk about the implications of this verse in our world, I mean, today. Like, you know, questions like, as you read a verse like this, you have to ask, like, do believers have to do whatever authorities say? Like, if so, are, are there never any exceptions? And I mean, what about Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5? Right? Like... They stood before the Jewish authorities and said, as they were told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, they said, hey, is it better to obey 
You are to obey God. We're going to go with God. What about Daniel? You know, praying when it was forbidden. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Like, like do we always have to obey? Like, are believers forbidden to speak out against corruption in government? Are we forbidden to like stand against and speak out to protest against things that we see that are wrong, not unlike John the Baptist speaking out and calling Herod out for his sin and uh, when he was the king of that region of Judea? And a big question is, how does this verse apply in a world where you get to elect those in authority? And in a world where you can have them lawfully removed from office, either by the next election or by some sort of process because they're no longer qualified. So those are big questions that in light of this verse, you should be asking. Here's a very practical one for Christians today. Do we have to submit to vaccine mandates? I mean, the government has said that every employer of a hundred or more has to have all their employees vaccinated or fired, like they have to get rid of them if they're not vaccinated. Like, I mean, that is the big talk on the news all the time. Do Christians have to obey vaccine mandates? It's become an explosive issue. Just this week, one Washington Post uh, columnist, Gene Weingarten, tweeted this. He tweeted this on Thursday. He just writes, is there a point at which the unvaccinated need to be prosecuted? Like, Does that send a kind of a chill down your spine that that's the kind of conversation we're having on this topic? Like what if the government extends the vaccine mandate to all employees? What if, it, what if like California, they extend it down to the fifth to five-year-olds so that if you are in the public or private school system, you have to be vaccinated. You have to have your kids vaxxed. Like, do you obey that? Like, what if our government, maybe following the lead of countries like Australia or even Canada, demand that we stop meeting as a church because it's dangerous to our community? Or they try to limit the attendance of those who come to church to only those who are vaccinated, as one province of Canada has done. You know, I'm thankful for uh, Texas Proposition Number Three that just passed on the second of November. That is a new amendment to the Texas Constitution that says that no government or municipality can like command the church in what they meet and how they meet. And so that's law here, but it's not everywhere. And so are there limits to civil authority? Like to answer these questions, I think it's important to understand the role of civil government and why God instituted it in the first place. Because civil government exists because God is the one who said, this is a good idea. He's the one who put it into place. And both by Paul in Romans chapter 13 and by Peter in 1 Peter 2, like they addressed the issue of what is the role of civil government. And they both agree that God established civil government to do two things. To punish evil and to promote good. Like Peter writes, 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, Paul says the exact same thing in Romans chapter 13. He just expands on it a lot more. He says the government exists for two things. They have two purposes, to punish evil and to promote good. And so, Christians, we should be ready to cooperate with our government in both of these areas. In addition to just the government, the civil government, God established other like institutions that have their own governance, that have their own uh, realms of authority. He established the church and He established the home, the family, and gave them responsibility and a realm of their authority. And so to understand, like as you read this passage as a Christian today, to kind of understand how it would apply to you today, it's important to understand the difference between us, right, in 2021 living in Texas and those living around and in the, you know, on an island in the Mediterranean Sea in the first century. Here's the big difference. We are citizens, not subjects. Understand that we are citizens of the United States of America, not subjects to Caesar, who when he dies, his son or a relative takes his place and lives until he dies, and they are actually the supreme authority. We are not subjects of some king. We are citizens of the United States and in our system of government. What that means is that we, the people, are actually an important part of the authoritative structure. Like that's the way our government works. We vote. Like we, we get into debates. Like we move, like we change things. We are involved. And as a constitutional republic, it means that everyone, including the President of the United States, everyone is subject to the same final authority, which is for us, the Constitution of the United States of America. So, kind of wrestling with that idea, wrestling with the idea of what do we do, like one theologian kind of wrestling with the various mandates and lockdowns and other COVID restrictions, he, he concluded that the best way for Christian citizens to respond in this day and age that can be so contentious is to keep our focus on the Constitution, which is our supreme authority. He writes, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Therefore, those who allow their governors to simply abolish their rights, the rights that are plainly outlined in the text of the Constitution, are themselves rebels. They are rebelling against lawful authority by submitting to unlawful authority. And then he says, I'm not saying that this specific situation is a situation where passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 don't apply. Rather, I'm saying that it applies in spades and that the overly compliant 
are the ones who are defying it. Well, that's a new spin, right? In fact, this week, uh, like I said, I could camp out on this and talk about it the whole time, but there's so much more in this passage that kind of commands our attention. And so this week you'll be able to, if you're in a small group, kind of discuss this issue with your small group. There's a couple questions guaranteed to start a fight. That'll be so fun, right? <laughs> but the bottom line application of this verse is this, guys. Decide before you have to decide. Like Decide before you have to decide. Like We need to be men and women of conviction who know what is right and decide what we're going to do before we actually have to face it. Like, run the hypotheticals through your mind and make a decision. I know we're living in an anti-authority moment in our culture, yet Christians, followers of Christ, are not anarchists. We are not insurrectionists. And so we need to decide right now what kind of citizen we are going to be. Like you need to decide what kind of citizen you're going to be in general. Right? What's going to be your MO? Are you going to be the kind of person who's always looking for a loophole to the rule? And in doing so, since you kind of don't like the authority of government, whenever you run into any kind of authority, whether it's a, a teacher or a parent or a pastor, you push back on that as well. See, if that's you, the problem is a you problem, not a government problem. And so you need to decide what kind of citizen you are going to be in general. And then you need to decide, according to this passage, to be a contributing member of society. It says, ready for every good work. Like Those are the kind of citizens we need to be. That's how we make God's invisible kingdom visible. Another thing we need to decide is decide to honor those who God has placed in authority, whether we consider them honorable or not. You know, Paul commanded to honor the king. Well, it was the king who had him beheaded. Peter commanded the, thing, the same thing. Honor the king. The one who crucified him upside down just ten years later. But we need to decide to honor those in authority. And we need to decide to obey even inconvenient and irritating laws. Like a few years ago, I got pulled over. It was 4 a.m. in the morning. I was right up the street here coming from my house uh, to church getting ready for a men's Bible study. I got pulled over in a city where nobody was moving. I was the only car on the road because I did not signal at a stop sign. And I'm like, signal for who? And he said, well, it's the law. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. I didn't like it. But I signal now because I don't want to get pulled over, right? Here's another one you need to decide. Decide to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, domestic and foreign. Like if you're a naturalized citizen to this country, that's what you swore. But all of us should swear that level of allegiance to our Constitution, if we're going to live in this country as citizens. But along with that, we need to decide that no government, no earthly leader, no president, no governor, no political party will ever command our unconditional allegiance that belongs to Christ alone. 
Remind them to be submissive to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. The word there is blasphemy. To blaspheme no one. To avoid quarreling. The word there means without fighting, without battle. And to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So Paul shifts gears here. He begins to talk about how do we relate to people in the world in general who aren't followers of Christ. They don't get it. They don't, they're not like us. We're not holding them to our standard. But how should we relate to them if we want to make the invisible kingdom visible for them? And so Paul says, okay, first off, on the topic of our behaviors to stop, there should be no slander and no fighting. I mean, that's it. No slander and no fighting. I mean, that's the world's tactic. That's not our tactic, okay? We have a higher standard than the Cretans. We have a higher standard than the world. No fighting, no slander. And then he says, be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all men. The word in the Greek for perfect is the same word translated just a few words later as the word all. Because that's what it means. It means all or every kind of. And so literally what Paul is saying is, show every kind of courtesy to every kind of person without distinction. I mean, that's pretty all-encompassing, right? Like there's no limit either on your gentle courtesy that you're to show or the kind of people to whom you would show that, whether they're in your political party or not in your church are not believing what you believe are not you know from your economic status are not like you're supposed to show the same level of respect to the waitress taking your order that gentle courtesy to her or him as you would to the president if he walks in the back door of our church show all kinds of courtesy to all kinds of people the bottom line here for Christians is Christians should be the best citizens. They should be the best neighbors. They should be the best co-workers. They should be the best students. They should be the best educators. Like we should set the standard because we are living in courtesy, always putting others ahead of ourselves. I mean, this is exactly what Paul's writing about in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's a tall order. In fact, I would say it's impossible. But here in... Philippians, and also in Titus chapter 3, Paul anchors this kind of life change to the Gospel. He says this is what God has made possible. He's made the impossible possible when He saved you and when He transformed you. And so in typical, once again, Pauline fashion, Paul starts by reminding us where we came from. Like what we were like before we met Jesus. 
and the kind of material God had to work with. Like He uses this as the, the theological reason God's transforming grace of why Christ followers should engage the world with the heart of a servant. He says, this is why, for, verse 3, we ourselves, Paul included, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Bottom line, Paul's saying, hey, remember this? Remember when we were the worst? Like, we were the worst. Like, this is a definition not just of those people out there. Paul is saying this about his own heart, about himself. He is saying, hey, there was a time when all of us, when we were foolish and disobedient. Like, we were both mentally and morally jacked up. There was a time when we were both clueless and careless. Remember that? Like, like we were into, we were just completely ignorant and, and lacking any true spiritual insight. We didn't have a clue about the things of God. Like we could not see it. It was almost like it was, I don't know, invisible. We couldn't see His kingdom. And we lived like it. And he says, and we were led astray and enslaved to passion and pleasure. Both of the verbs there are in the passive mood indicating that some force or some forces had such a grip on us that we could not break free. We were slaves. And it says that we were passing our days in malice and envy. Like we were just going with the flow of culture. We're just passing our days just like everybody else. Like that was our normal. Our normal was that we were wishing evil on people while coveting anything good they had. That was our natural bent. Like we only looked out for ourselves. And then he says we were being hated and hating one another. Like we lived in some sort of reciprocal hostility. Guys, Paul's saying that's who we all were. But that's not who we are. And so what happened? Guys, here's what happened. God came for us. Like That's what this passage is about to say. God came for us. What made the difference? Why can I now be a person who is looking out for the needs of others instead of myself? Why can I show all courtesy to all kinds of people? What happened is that God came for us when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And so in this passage, in very typical kind of Pauline fashion, Paul tells the story of how messed up we were. He gives us the bad news and then he interjects this one word, the best word in the passage, but. But. Like he does this in 1 Corinthians 6 when he gives this long laundry list of people who if they are enslaved to these sins, if this is who they are, what they do, their identity, they will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. And then he adds this. And such were you. Like that was you. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, remember when we were dead? Separated from God? Enemies of God? We were hostile toward Him? We were just trapped in pleasure and sensuality? We were by nature children of wrath like everyone else in the planet? But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, He made us alive. Later in that same chapter, he says, remember a time when you were alienated from God? Like you didn't have a clue about the spiritual realities of the universe. You didn't have a clue about the covenants of God and His promise. You didn't have a clue about how to be brought into a right relationship with Him to be in the family of God. You were on the outside looking in, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And verses 4-7 through of Titus 3 form one sentence in the Greek and one sentence in the English Standard Bible. A very long, run-on sentence. And this is what he says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Guys, in, in these, this lengthy sentence, you see all the persons, all three persons of the Holy Trinity active in securing your salvation. In fact, Titus chapter 3 through Titus, I mean, uh, verse 3 through verse 7 is your testimony. If you're a Christian, this is your testimony from heaven's perspective. I mean, not from your perspective. From your perspective, you're just kind of going along, living your life, and then you begin to clue into something for some reason. Right? You've been, you began to think about eternal things and about God and about death and about is, like, is there a reality beyond this? You started thinking about that stuff for some strange reason. And then in a conversation with a coworker or a parent or a friend, in a sermon that you heard, a podcast you listened to, You understood the Gospel for the first time. The light came on and you surrendered your life to Christ and asked His death death on the cross to count for you. See, that's our perspective on our testimony. From God's perspective, oh, you were dead. Like you were a stranger. You were an enemy. You were hostile toward Me. In fact, you were drowning 
You were flailing away in the deep, dark water and you were going down for the very last time and then God reached down and He rescued you and He set you on a solid rock. See, that's your testimony from God's perspective. And that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 40. Like, you lifted me out of the pit, out of the miry clay, and I will sing a new song. So quickly, just in this passage, we see the members of the Trinity active in securing our salvation. We see the Father's love is the source of our salvation. Right? It's, it's the goodness and loving kindness of God that moved Him to save us in the first place. It's the mercy of God, verse 5, that moved Him to rescue us. It's the grace of God, verse 7, that moved Him to leave heaven and come down for us. Like salvation did not come from within you. You weren't the one who clued in. You didn't find some spark of life in you and then somehow think, you know what, I think there's more to this and you just sought it out. It did not originate with you. It did not come from within, but from without. The source of your salvation is the love of your heavenly Father. His goodness. It's His loving kindness. It's His mercy. It's His grace. Salvation originated in the heart of of God. Like it's because of His very nature. <laughs> Not because of our intrinsic worth. It's because of His very nature that He intervened on our behalf. Like God took the initiative. God made the first move. He came after us when we were at our worst. Like as we read this passage, it's clear that Grace, like grace itself, came looking for you. Love came for you. God's love is the source of our salvation. And the Son's sacrifice is the basis of our salvation. It says in verse 5 that He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own Mercy, the basis of our salvation, the ground of our salvation is the mercy of God displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Like when it says that the loving kindness and the goodness of God appeared, when did that happen? When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Like Jesus is goodness incarnate. Like Jesus is the loving kindness of God made flesh. The ground of your salvation, the ground of my salvation is not works of righteousness that we have done, but by the work of Christ, His mercy on the cross. Which is, guys, super good news, right? Because one day you will stand before the throne of God. We looked at this in the book of Revelation just a few weeks ago. We will stand before the throne of God and a book will be opened. 
and it will be a record of your entire life. Everything you've done, everything you've said, everything you've thought, everything you've failed to do. Like your whole life laid bare before God and it says in Revelation that you and I will be judged by what's written in that book. How do you think you will fare on that day? But then it gives some incredibly good news. It says, but then another book was opened. And it was the Lamb's book of life. And every name written in it, like every name written in that book, were not judged by their works, but by the work of Christ. Guys, it's because of the Son and His death that we have any basis for our salvation. And then finally, the Spirit's work is the means of our salvation. He's the one who applies the work of Christ to our hearts on behalf of the Trinity. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That word regeneration is a weighty theological term. Wayne Grudem defines it this way, it's the secret act of God in which He imparts new spiritual life to us. He says it's sometimes called being born again. Another theologian, Millard Erickson, defines it this way, it's the other side of conversion. It's completely God's doing because on your best day, you have nothing to offer God. It's God's transformation of individual believers, His giving of a new spiritual vitality and direction to their lives. In other words, it's a new birth for a new life. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. The word regeneration only appears twice. The Greek word only appears twice in the New Testament. Here and in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus uses it to talk about the renewal, the final renewal of all things at His return. I mean, that's an indication of the radical nature of this transformation. It's when the Spirit makes dead people alive. Lost people found. Enemies friends. Strangers, sons, and daughters. And so in this sentence, you see all three persons of the Trinity engaged in securing your salvation. The love of the Father who took the initiative. The death of the Son in whom God's grace and mercy appeared. And the work of the Spirit by whom we are born again. And who was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Finally, justification and adoption are the goal of our salvation. Justification is another weighty theological term. It means uh, the sovereign act of God whereby He declares sinners 
righteous in His sight. Like God declares us righteous before the court of heaven because of what His Son has done, not because of what we have done. Like salvation, according to this passage and the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament, is by grace alone. That's not some invention of the Protestant Reformation. Like we have been declared righteous by the judge of all the universe based on the work of Christ and we've been imputed with Him given the very righteousness of Christ so that in eternity we will ever be treated as Jesus deserves to be treated. Because on the cross, He was treated like you deserve to be treated. So we are just as if we had never sinned. We are just as if we have always been righteous and like we've seen who we were. This is who we are now. Because of this, we've been adopted into the family of God and we are now sons and daughters. And Paul says this saying is trustworthy. Like Paul endorses it. He's like, this is true. It can be trusted. Like the words of verse 4 to verse 7 probably are from an ancient hymn in the first century. They didn't originate with Paul. It may have been a creed or a hymn or early, early catechism that Christians passed around to communicate. This is the Gospel. This is what God did. This is what the Trinity did to secure our salvation. And so how do you respond to the salvation that the Trinity secured on your behalf? Well, with one, with confidence. Because our salvation rests on what God has done alone. And then humility because we contributed nothing to our own salvation and praise of what the Trinity has done for us and then faithful service. As Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And he's talking about outsiders there. Like the world is watching. And if you want to make the invisible kingdom visible to those who are far from Christ, who were like you before you were rescued, who don't see what you see and don't understand what you understand, then be different. Like live in light of the Gospel all the time. They don't see what you see. They see a command of God that says, Thou shalt not. What we see is the love of God displayed in the command because it's for our own good and for His glory. What they see is a bunch of religious people gathering for 2,000 years to have the ministry of Word and sacrament. What we see is a God a father motivated so by love that He sent His Son to die on our behalf and then to apply that death through the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive us and to secure us for eternity. Guys, that should be the theme of your whole life. One uh, hymn writer, John Stocker, wrote in... Devonshire, England in 1776 while we were signing the Declaration of Independence. 
in England, he was writing these words, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my soul fast. And then he says, Great Father of mercy, Thy goodness I own, and the covenant love of Thy crucified Son. All praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. That should be the theme of your song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You that motivated by Your love, You sent Your Son. Lord Jesus, thank You that on the cross You bore my sin. You bore the sins of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And thank You, Holy Spirit, that You are the one that turned the light on for us. We weren't seeking God. We weren't exploring spiritual realities. We were in darkness. And You turned on the light. We were sinking down. And Father, You gave us Your hand. And You placed us on that solid rock. And now, as a result of that salvation, we want to... Oh, Holy Trinity, sing a new song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.